You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Today's teaching text is Luke 19, 28 through 40. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Some of the Pharisees, oh, sorry, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Thank you. Remain standing. Let's pray together one more time. Father, thank you for your word. What a gift uh, that we would have that. Word from you preserved for these so many years so that we could not just read it, not just be informed, but that our hearts would be changed. That's what I ask you to do today. Holy Spirit, do what I certainly can't do. None of us can conjure up on our own. And let's change our hearts through your presence and your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You guys can be seated. I don't have a cold. I've been crying, so I'm sorry. Uh, I tried to mute my mic a second ago and so I could sniff a bit. Starts dripping down my face. I apologize. There was a little-known documentary in 2013 uh, entitled uh, "Frozen," I believe it was. And uh, in this documentary, we're in, we're introduced to a pair of uh, orphaned princesses, Elsa and Anna. And on one particular day, Princess Anna, she's real excited because it's coronation day, and uh, her sister is finally going to be crowned the Queen of Arendelle. And she is going to receive the glory that she is due. And not only that, but people from all over the kingdom, they're going to be there. She is so excited. She breaks into song. Finally, they're opening up the gates. You remember that? Yeah, I mean, like, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Boy, the golf clap there was so great. Thank you. Uh, I, in my mind, I played that a couple of times. I'm like, dude, they're going to just break out in applause. It's going to be awesome. No, thank you. She's so excited. Not only that, but they've got like uh, uh, 8,000 salad plates. They're breaking out all the finest stuff. They're going to have a huge ball. There's this, this huge celebration. All this planning is going into it. There was another coronation that happened in real life. Okay, in 1953, the Commonwealth of Great Britain celebrated the coronation, 1953, of Queen Elizabeth, who is still living, Queen Elizabeth II. Now, according to Wikipedia, where you can get all of your knowledge, uh, Elizabeth, she took an oath 
She was anointed with holy oil. She was invested with robes and regalia. She was crowned queen of the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka. This was a one-day ceremony, one-day ceremony, and it took 14 months to plan. And it cost an estimated $56 million for this one-day ceremony. And during the coronation, Elizabeth wore a crown that was encrusted with sapphires and rubies. And it was all accenting this one diamond in the middle of the crown that was 317 carats. 317 carats. The the total value of the crown jewels, I don't know if you know this, they're on display in London, you can go see them. The, The total value of this crown is around $39 million that she wore on her head. Now in AD 30, a little while back, there was another coronation, and Luke just gave us an account of this coronation. It's much less ostentatious, but it's the coronation of King Jesus, and he's a true king. This is a real coronation. He is God's true king, and no other coronation would ever come close to the honor that is due to Jesus. You could take the coronations of every king and queen who has ever lived on this planet and they wouldn't get close to touching the hem of the majesty of Jesus. Nowhere close. And at this coronation, we're going to see at least three categories of people who are present there. First of all, you have these true followers of Jesus, those who are devoted to Jesus. They've been with him for some time. They've been impacted by his teaching. They'd seen his miracles. Their eyes had been opened, their hearts awakened to the reality of who Jesus is, and they believed. They didn't uh, fully understand exactly what's happening here at this point, but they were truly devoted to Jesus. Next, you have this group of people we call the bandwagon crowd. It was the largest group there. Now, the word had spread, the word about Jesus had spread all over the place because of what he'd been doing, his, his teachings, his, his miracles. These are the people who would, they're going to get caught up in the frenzy. They're going to be the ones shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And later the same week, the same people who are going to be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Finally, you have the enemies of Jesus. And most of these people, by the way, are really religious people. And they hated Jesus. They had for some time, they'd been plotting to kill him for some time, since early on in his ministry. And it can be assumed that in a crowd like this, or people watching online, that we fall into at least, at least one of these three categories too. Like many of you here, you're the faithful. You've given not just your mind to the idea of Jesus, but you've given your hearts, your lives to following Jesus. Others of you are, are more like the bandwagon crowd. It could be any number of things that brings you here or gets you to tune in. It could be a spouse trying to please him or her. It could be to, to get something from Jesus. Maybe a better life, maybe get a promotion, maybe get relief from guilt that you're carrying around. Maybe you see the joy in others who are following Jesus and you just want in on that. But just know, if that's you, I, I want you to know that you are welcome here. I want you to feel shame for being here. You're welcome here. And there may be others who happen somehow to be in this room this morning or maybe just watching 
who have a genuine animosity towards Jesus. Like maybe you've been hurt by the church. Maybe you truly believe that Christianity is bad for the world. There are people who believe that. Or that it's just maybe a made-up collection of fairy tales trying to control the masses. It is a growing crowd in the West, by the way. Christopher Hitchens once called Jesus the Santa Claus for adults. This is the idea that, that this is just a way for us to feel better about ourselves. And it's really kind of sad. And of course, there's others that may just be indifferent. They don't care. But whatever or whoever you are, regardless of where you are, there's one thing that we do all have in common. We all have hopes. We all have dreams. We all have like these itches that we're trying to scratch. We all want to be known. We all want to belong somewhere. We all want to be loved. And we're all trying to scratch that itch, to quench that thirst. And no matter how we try or where we look, somehow we always seem to find ourselves let down. But just like when Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, where he openly declares who he truly is, the king, just like that, he comes to you with the truth about who he is. And it may not be who you thought. And he's bringing to you the one thing that you truly need. And it may not be exactly what you were expecting. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. If we look at the story And so is everyone else, by the way. Everyone's on their way to Jerusalem because it's Passover week. And there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands who are flooding into the city. And just a few days earlier, Jesus and his disciples had crossed over the Jericho or the Jordan River into Jericho on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, but on his way, crosses over a river into this town of Jericho. On his way into the town, he meets these two blind beggars. And he heals them of their blindness. And then just shortly after that, as he comes into Jericho, he meets uh, this famous tax collector, famous for being bad, infamous tax collector named Zacchaeus. We heard about him just a few weeks ago. You know, the wee little man climbed up in a sycamore tree. Jesus completely, radically changes Zacchaeus' life, forgives him of his sins, and Zacchaeus becomes a completely different person, just giving away all his stuff. And following Jesus. A few weeks before all this, Jesus had been back in this area, the area of Bethany, and he had raised this man from the dead named Lazarus. That's a pretty big deal. Lazarus became pretty famous, as you might uh, imagine. And John tells us that tons of people were putting their faith in Jesus because of Lazarus. In fact, it was such a big to-do that these religious people who hated Jesus now hate Lazarus too, and they are applauding to kill Lazarus too. Again, would that be bad? Like you just got raised from the dead, and now you got all these people out wanting to kill you. Like, that gum, I was enjoying uh, the presence of God, and here I've been brought back to this place, and now everybody wants to kill me again. Like, come on. Lots of other people putting their faith in Jesus because of all these other miracles and this really large crowd of people have begun to follow Jesus. So thousands of people flooding into Jerusalem. Jesus is headed that way up from Jericho and the crowd around Jesus getting bigger and bigger as he makes his way up the ascent. And when we say make his way up the ascent, because Jericho, uh, it's 850 feet below sea level. It is, it's way down there. Okay. And the Mount of Olives where our story started today is about 27 feet 
2,700 feet above sea level. So you get like a 3,500 feet journey. It's a, it's a tall hike that they're making up this mountain. And the news about Jesus is spreading that he's headed this way. And so outpour the people from the city to meet his entourage. They are overwhelmed with excitement. They are stoked. They are anticipating, guess what? The Messiah is coming. Could this be the one that God has sent to rescue us from our oppression? Their oppression. They were being ruled by the Romans, and the Romans were hated. The Jews hated the Romans. They, they, the Romans ruled the, the land, and the Jews were waiting for this king of God, their king, to one day come and set them free. Well, here comes Jesus, and he is coming as a king. Jesus is the king. Mm. Thank you, Lord. But he's not coming to conquer the Romans and reign in Jerusalem. And Jesus is coming to die. Now, up until this point, Jesus had put a stop to any kind of public display of his messiahship. He's always been the Messiah. Uh, It's often referred to as the Christ, the same thing. And at any point, it would have been right for everyone to break out in applause, in celebration of Jesus. This would have been right for the people to do at any time. But over and over and over throughout the the Gospels, we see Jesus putting a stop to any kind of display like this. He never would allow it. For example, John records that after Jesus feeds the 5,000, he knew, it says, that people intended to make him king by force. So what does he do? He withdrew and slips away. Matthew tells us in chapter 16 of his gospel that Jesus was asking his disciples, hey, who do other people say that I am? Like, well, some people say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. You know, some people say, well, you're one of the prophets, you know, you're this or that. And then Jesus asked this awesome question. Oh, he's asking you this question too. Who do you say that I am? This really famous line comes from Peter. He says, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, he doesn't deny what Peter says. He says, what, has, what you've just said has been real, revealed to you by the Holy Spirit. This is true. But then he says, don't tell anybody. He tells his disciples not to tell anyone that he's the Messiah. In fact, there's this whole motif that runs throughout the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of Mark, known as the Messianic secret. And why is this? Why is it that Jesus wants to hide or just not publicly display or really come out with it that he's Messiah because he is. Well, the reason is that it's not his time. When Jesus performs his very first miracle where he turns water into wine, his mom's like, "Uh, Jesus, you know, they're running out of wine at the wedding. And Jesus is like, woman, he didn't say it like that. He he says in a real wonderful way. I mean, it was was honoring. I I don't know why. Anyway, he's like, my time has has not come yet. What time is this? Well, it's talking about the time that he is going to go to the cross. This time isn't here yet. But here in in our story today, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, it's the first time that Jesus has allowed this kind of display. And why? Because it's God's time. It is time. 
You see, the religious leaders, they were very intimidated by Jesus. Uh, they, they hated Jesus. They, they wanted Jesus dead. And Jesus knew that any kind of display like this is really going to get their attention. Not only that, it's going to stoke so much hatred and animosity in their hearts that they have to move against Jesus. Jesus allows this public display of his Messiahship because this is going to send him to the cross. It's kind of like uh, this movie. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but I'm going to ruin it if you haven't. It's called A Quiet Place. And it is a scary uh, movie, you know, but there's no bad words in it. In fact, there's hardly any words at all in it. Uh, there, the, the premise of the movie, A Quiet Place, is that the, the world's been taken over by aliens, okay? And these aliens can't see. They can't see anything. But they can hear. They can hear better than like any creature in the world. And if they hear you, they like come running. They're so scary looking, you know? I don't know why every alien is scary, but they are, these things are scary. They come, they come like running and wah, like just, they devour you like in seconds. It's crazy. Just make a peep and that's what happens. Well, towards the end of the movie, get ready. I'm going to ruin it. Okay. If you haven't seen it, plug your ears. Here we go. Mute your TV. Here we go. So at the end of the, the movie, the, the, the main, uh, characters, kids, are trapped in a truck and this this alien is like trying to get at him he's like pounding on the top of it they're screaming they're scared they're inside and the dad is standing you know 30 40 feet behind and sees this alien like trying to get his kids and he looks at his son who his son really kind of or no his son it's his daughter in it who really no his son I can't remember which it is and one of his kids really kind of doubts his love for them okay Anyway, and this, it's his daughter because she can't hear. She's deaf. Anyway, so he looks at his daughter who's looking at him through the back of the truck and he's standing out there and she knows exactly what's about to happen. And he looks at his daughter and he tells her like, he uses sign language like, I love you, he says. And he, <laughs> I'm going to cry at this scary movie. It's so stupid. Anyway, it's so stupid. <laughs> if you watch it too, you'll cry. Anyway, this dad then just belts out this, ah, just screams and the, the aliens, like, they, they leave the kids alone. They come and they devour the dad and the kids get away free. And what Jesus is doing here is just like what that dad did. He's looking at down the halls of, of, of time. He knows exactly what he's stepping into. And he knows what's going to happen when this all takes place. It's just like that dad yelling, getting the attention of the enemy and pulling it off the kids who are in danger. So that they could go free. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. He, he's go, he is going to like get the attention of his enemies so that he would be crucified so that you and I could be set free. And he looks at you and me and he says, I love you. So Jesus knows it's not only going to get their attention, but it's going to speed up their plots to kill him. Because Jesus was appointed to be on that cross by Friday. Why Friday? Like, why is that such a big deal? Well, Friday begins the Passover. And this is the day when all the lambs were slaughtered. All the sacrifices were made. The Passover was a celebration of an event that had happened 1,300 years before this. When God's people were enslaved in Egypt, you may know the story. And Moses is going to lead them out. You may have seen the the movie, you know. Uh, But Moses is going to lead the people out of Egypt. And God tells the people, like the the last plague that is coming upon the people of Egypt and upon Pharaoh is that God is going to send a death angel to kill the firstborn of every household. 
But you can escape the judgment of God if you'll take a lamb. You'll slaughter this lamb. He gives certain instructions on what to do. And then he says, I want you to take the blood of that lamb and spread it on the doorpost of your house. And when the death angel sees the blood of that lamb, he's going to pass over you. And so that the judgment of God doesn't fall upon you. And so every year in celebration of Passover, the people of God would, would slaughter a lamb to atone for their sins so that God's judgment wouldn't fall upon them. And here Jesus now, the perfect sinless lamb of God, is going to enter into God's holy city. He's going to head straight towards the temple and he is going to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice once for all so that if the blood of Jesus is spread upon the doorpost of your heart, the judgment of God would not fall upon you, but he would pass over you. He has to be on that cross on Friday because that's when Passover lambs were slaughtered. Not only that, not only does it have to be on Friday, but it has to be in Jerusalem. Jesus isn't just going to die on behalf of the people anywhere, but it's in Jerusalem. It's the holy city. It's where the temple of God was. It's where the altar was. It's where all the sacrifices were made. Not only that, 600 years earlier, 600 years before Jesus walks into or rides into Jerusalem, this prophet Ezekiel had a vision where he saw the glory of God, which was believed or understood to be in the temple, okay, in this most holy place. And he has a vision where he sees the glory of God rise up out of the temple and then like move its way out of the eastern gate of Jerusalem. And then Jerusalem, which is also kind of elevated, it's you know, 2,500 feet or so above sea level. And he sees this glory of God come up out of the temple, move to the eastern gate of Jerusalem. And then about 300 feet higher, it makes its way up the Mount of Olives where it rests. And so he's had this vision that the glory of God has left Jerusalem. It's left God's city, which it's because of, by the way, the sin of God's people. And then this opens up the invasion of the Babylonians to come in and conquer the city. And so Ezekiel's had this vision that God's glory has left the temple and he, he saw it leave and go to the Mount of Olives. Look what's happening. Jesus is going to leave from the Mount of Olives. The glory of the only Son of God is going to descend from the Mount of Olives down that 300-foot slope down across the Kidron Valley and into Jerusalem. And according to Mark's gospel, he's going to walk straight into the temple. The glory of God is coming back to Jerusalem. God is coming for his people. And it has to be here. So Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He knows this is God's timing. He knows it has to be now. He knows it has to be here. But as he goes, he faces the greatest horror of his life. Jesus faces the judgment of God. Separation from the love of his father. Jesus is going to experience death, something that the Son of God has never known. Not only that, but he's going to experience the full wrath of his father. He's going to be treated as a sinner. You remember later in the week, Jesus, just before he's crucified, he goes to a garden and prays. It says that his soul is in great agony. And so he prays before his father for at least an hour. 
And he prays and asks, if the Father will let this cup pass from me. Isn't it a weird thing to hear? It sounds weird to me. Like, why would Jesus, who wants to do the will of God, he's come to die for his people. When Peter said, like, no, I'll never let you be crucified. Jesus is like, yeah, he was southern. But Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. He's like, this is why I came. This is what I'm here to do. And yet the day before he's crucified, Jesus, or the night before, he's praying to his father, let this cup pass from me. Why would he pray something like that? Well, it's because Jesus is not just going to die. He's going to feel the full weight of the fury of God as if he had done what you've done. As if he had treated God the way you treated God. And he is going to become sin for us. So outside, there's this big frenzy going on. The Messiah is coming. Like people are getting excited. Here comes Jesus. Perhaps this is the time when God's going to restore Israel to its, to its proper glory. The king is coming and the Romans are going to be out of here. Maybe this is the time when Israel is made the crown jewel of the world. And they are so excited. And that's what's going outside of Jesus. That's what's going on outside. But inside of Jesus, he knows that the king has come to die. So lots of people, we've talked about descending upon Jerusalem. Some estimates put the, uh, the, the influx of people around 2 million people. The reason they think that is because Josephus about, uh, well, in the first century, there's this historian named Josephus who talks about uh, 10 years, I think it was, after Jesus was crucified, there was one particular Passover where over 260,000 lambs were slaughtered at the Passover. And if it's one lamb for every 10 people or so, it'd be over 2 million people in the city. Not only that, but there was a huge crowd around Jesus. Some estimates are, are over a quarter of a million people in this entourage of people as Jesus is coming into the city. After all, Jesus had basically banished illness from the area. He had healed disease and taught with authority, healed the blind just two days before. No doubt those people, those two men right there were in the crowd with him. I would imagine Lazarus was in the crowd too. Bethany, by the way, it's on the back side of the Mount of Olives. So where they are in Bethany, they can't yet see Jerusalem. So the Mount of Olives is kind of between them. You have to crest the hill in order to see God's city. But as Jesus and his disciples crest the Mount of Olives and get to the top, the holy city of God comes into view. And that magnificent temple that Herod had built, plated in gold, you could just imagine shined in the sun as Jesus came over that hill. I'm telling you, the excitement had hit 11. And in verse 30 to 31, let's backtrack just a second. Uh, this really kind of humble display of Christ's omniscience. He knows something and he makes this really odd request. Jesus tells his disciples to go over and uh, to, to this nearby village, we assume that it's Bethphage, and go over to this nearby village. And as soon as you enter the village, you're going to find this, uh, this colt. Uh, Matthew tells us that he's actually going to find a, a donkey, the, the colt's mother, and this colt. And I want you to untie them and bring them to me. Okay, that's an odd request. How does he know that there's going to be a colt tied up there? Well, it's because he knows, he knows everything. Like the, 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 Jesus... He's a little different. 
than you and me. And he tells, yeah, amen. He tells his disciples to go and find this cult. And then he just slips in a little bit more detail. He says, oh, and by the way, if, if they ask you why you're doing this, just tell them the Lord needs it. That's all you need to say. Just give them that instruction. So can you imagine these two disciples who are unnamed, don't know which two they are, but they go over to this little village nearby. And as soon as they walk into town, looky there. It's a donkey and a colt tied up right by this house. They're like, ah, that's just like Jesus said, you know. I guess we're going to untie it. So they go over there and they start to untie this donkey. And guess what happens? Somebody standing outside says, hey, why are you untying that donkey? <laughs> and, then, and then can you imagine that disciple looking at the other and saying, like, hey, Jesus said he'd ask that. And then they answer the way Jesus says. And they say, well, the Lord needs it. And Luke's, that's all Luke says that they said. So at, at a first glance, if you look, they're, they're robbing someone of their donkey. And the only reason they're given is that some guy needs it. The Lord, you know, who's that? Well, a couple of things this points to. First of all, there is a prerogative that a king has in the first century. And that is that a king has the prerogative or the right to commandeer a beast of burden. And Jesus here is exercising his right as king to demand the use of a donkey. But not only that, um, Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, um, needs it. He says, the Lord needs it. Well, I would assume, I'm just, this is my assuming, the Bible doesn't say, but I would assume that the owner of this donkey knows who Jesus is. Jesus had just lay, raised Lazarus from the dead in the same area, just a week or two before. The, the fame about Jesus has spread everywhere. This guy, this whole village, Bethphage, which we don't even know exactly where it is. I mean, close, I think we know where it is. It doesn't even exist anymore. Well, there's a, there's a church that says, I don't know. Anyway, we're not sure. <clears throat> the point is, it's a small little village. It's not even mentioned anywhere else in the Bible but here. But there's no doubt that this guy would know who Jesus was. This whole village would have been overrun by, by pilgrims anyway. And so can you imagine when he asked, why are you untying my colt? And these men say, the Lord needs it. I would imagine that he knows exactly who they're talking about. What? The, the Lord? You mean Jesus wants my donkey? He wants to use my animals? Could you imagine that? Could you imagine being the owner of those donkeys? And these guys come and say, hey, I want to take your donkey because Jesus needs it. I bet this guy was honored. I bet he was excited. I bet he was really happy to allow his donkey to be untied and taken to Jesus. Let me ask you this. What needs to be untied in your life? What, what do you have that Jesus could make use of? And some of us come to Jesus thinking like, well, I don't really have. And some of us think, well, we got, you know, God's lucky he saved me. Uh, I got lots to offer. But most of us probably think, I don't really know that I have anything to offer God. But I want to tell you this, that if you will simply make yourself and whatever it is that you have or don't have, make it available to God, you'll be amazed at what he can do with your life. Rick Warren says this, he says, God is looking for people to use. And if you can get usable, he will wear you out. (laughs) The most dangerous prayer you can pray is this, use me. (laughs) 
You think Christianity is boring? You think Jesus is boring? Make yourself available to him, watch him use you, and see how boring it is. I guarantee you these disciples didn't think it was boring. I guarantee you. Why a donkey? Uh, Zechariah 9.9, the other gospels point this out. Uh, Luke doesn't reference it, but there is a prophecy about the coming Messiah in Zechariah chapter 9. Where he says, let's read it together. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. Talking about, by the way, the people of God, okay? Listen, God's people. Rejoice. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Not just a donkey, he says, but on the, the child of a donkey. This we see in the, in the gospels is a cult that has never been ridden. It is, it has a specific purpose and that is to be used by the king of the world. That's its purpose. And now in verse 35 to 38, they bring it to Jesus. They throw their cloaks on the cult and put Jesus on it like he's a king. They place him on the donkey. And he went along, and as he went along, excuse me, people spread their cloaks on the road. We see in the other gospels that not only did they put their cloaks on the road, but they began to cut branches of palm leaves and lay those on the road too. They're waving them around and they're laying these branches on the road. Check this out, by the way. This is just like a visible image of the idea of submission. So, cause I mean, I can't throw myself on the road and submit, be under the feet of Jesus. That would hurt myself. <coughs> Boy, I'm coughing now. I, I don't know what's wrong with me. Anyway, <laughs> excuse me. Oh, thank you. I can't do that, but I can take my clothes and I throw them there. They're showing submission to the king. It's why every throne that you see in ancient times is elevated. Whenever you come to the king, the king is above you and you're under his feet. You're submitting to the king. And here they are submitting to King Jesus, throwing their coats on the ground, waving palm branches. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, so now the city of Jerusalem's in view, the whole crowd of disciples begins to joyfully praise God with loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. And they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. In Matthew, they say, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. By the way, they're quoting Psalm 118. This word Hosanna literally means, Lord, save us. Save us. And they're shouting Hosanna, not because they mean, like you might think, save us from our sins. They mean save us from the Romans. Rescue us. Free us. So here he comes. Hosanna. Save us. These people are ascribing Messiahship to Jesus. They are worshiping Jesus. And he's accepting it. He's not turning them away. And the religious leaders just won't have it. John about upsetting. This really upsets the religious leaders because they believe this is blasphemy. This is a sin worthy of death. And they can't stop the crowd. We see later on in the text that they, they know they can't stop the crowd. The crowd's like, ah, oh, all into Jesus. So they go straight to Jesus. And they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Like, tell them to be quiet. Uh, by the way, Jesus is a teacher, 
And Jesus here, however, is going to openly and publicly display that he's more than just a good teacher. He publicly displays and declares who he really is. And he's saying, I'm not just another prophet. I'm not just another teacher. I am the Messiah. I am the Holy One of God. In fact, I am God himself. In fact, he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus openly and publicly displaying who he is. And so we've got to get this idea out of our head that Jesus can somehow be something else. Well, he could be a couple of other things, but a good teacher is not one of them. Because Jesus, a good teacher would never tell his followers or those who are listening to him that he's God. A good teacher would never encourage you to lay down his life for his teachings. C.S. Lewis says this, Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about us being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. So who he is is not who they thought. And the purpose of his coming is not what they expected. He really is the king. And this is a real coronation. But unlike any other king or queen who's ever been coronated, the glory of the spotless lamb of God is the only jewel on display here. And he knew what he was getting himself into. He knows that when he does this, he's going to die. And he doesn't just do it anyway. It's why he does it. Do you know he knows you too? He knows your heart too. He knows exactly the itch that you're trying to scratch. He knows the thirst you're trying to quench. Get this. Jesus knows exactly what he's getting into with you. And he's moving towards you anyway. And not because of something he sees in you. We get that idea out of our head too. Because some of us don't see much in ourselves anyway. It's not because of something great he sees in you, but it's because of his own greatness, the greatness in him. It's who he is. And when he comes into the city, these people are going to be so stoked, these religious people are going to be so stoked by anger. They're going to kill Jesus out of hatred. But Jesus is doing this out of love. And he loves you. And he wants you to know, I'm telling you, every person in here, this is true of every one of us. Jesus is the only one who's going to satisfy the itch. The only one. A couple of examples we could look at in the New Testament. John chapter 4, Jesus meets this woman at a well. She's going in the middle of the day because she's kind of embarrassed of who she is to draw water. Most women didn't do that. At that time of day, Jesus meets her and addresses the issue, which is that she was trying to scratch this itch by looking to men. She was looking for a man to do it for her. The way we know this is she'd had five husbands and now she's living with another guy that's not her husband. So at least six. And it's just not doing it for her. And Jesus says, hey, if you keep coming to this well, you're going to be thirsty again. He's not talking about the well of water. He's talking about the well of men. Keep coming back to these men. You're going to be thirsty over and over and over. But if you come to me, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for water and I'd give it to you and you'd never be thirsty again. I could satisfy that thirst. 
And what ultimately happens with her is that she believes, gives her life to Jesus, and is completely changed. She finds satisfaction. Another example is in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus encounters this rich young ruler. So this guy has lots of money. He's trying to scratch an itch too. He's trying to quench a thirst and he's trying to do it with possessions. He has a lot of land, a lot of money. And that's how he's trying to satisfy himself. He comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, how do I have eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what you really need to do is sell everything you have, give it to the poor, take up your cross and follow me and you won't be scratching anything else anymore. I'll satisfy what you're looking for. But that guy walks away sad. He has in his mind, he's like, you know what? I, I don't know about that. I'm going to keep trying it the way I've been trying it. That's how he walks away. The third guy we could look to, a guy named Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus in John chapter 3. And he says, like, uh, what do I need to do to enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, well, you need to be born again. He's like, I don't understand what you're talking about. He's wrestling back and forth with Jesus. He's hanging his hat on who he is in, the, in society as a religious leader. He really is somebody. He's got a name for himself. That's why he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. He doesn't want others to see him. And What's really crazy is, is it seems like Nicodemus maybe gives his life to following Jesus. Maybe he becomes a true disciple, but we don't really know for sure whatever happens with him. Here's the thing. Regardless of the person in the Bible or who you are out here, Jesus comes to you with who he really is, and he offers to you what you really need. But there's, there's, a, there's an offer placed in your lap to either believe that, to trust that he alone can satisfy the thirst that you have. And he invites you to let go of all the things that you're, you've been trying, all the things you've been going to in this life to satisfy and to trust in him. But it doesn't force that on us. Some people walk away like, no, nah, I can't do that. I can't give up all this stuff. I know it hasn't worked for me yet, but if I, if I just keep trying, if I just get a little bit more, if I could just have one more experience, if I could just accomplish this one other thing, maybe that would be the thing that does it. But Jesus is the only one who can satisfy. And one day, there's going to be another coronation. This coronation of Jesus as he's coming down into Jerusalem here, it's pointing to the reality that there's another coronation coming. And when he comes next time, He's going to come again. It's not going to be on a donkey. It's going to be on a white horse. And it is going to have all the fanfare and luster that he deserves. It's going to be awesome. Scriptures tell us that every eye is going to see him on that day. Not just 250,000 or 2 million or whatever the number was. Every eye will see him on that day. And it will be glorious if you're trusting in him. Henry Nowen, Jared shared a uh, devotional with me yesterday just as he was... I appreciate that, by the way, brother, very much. <clears throat> he ended this devotional on Palm Sunday with a prayer. And this prayer, I think I may have given it. We put it on the screen. He says, Almighty God, today we pay homage to Christ in his victory. Talking about Palm Sunday. With songs of praise, we accompany him into his holy city. Listen to this prayer. Grant, in other words, allow us, grant that we may come into the heavenly Jerusalem through him. Do you get that? Just like his disciples are following Jesus into the holy city of Jerusalem, we too follow Jesus into his heavenly city of glory. God is going to come. He's going to send Jesus another time. He's going to set up his kingdom here on earth forever and ever and ever. He will reign. He will put away, uh, put an end to all sad things. 
All evil will be gone. There'll be no sin, no more mourning, crying, or pain. The old order of things will be passed away and everything will become new. And those who love him will reign with him forever. We'll enter that holy city with him. Grant that we may come into the heavenly Jerusalem through him who reigns with you through all eternity. Amen. Just a few days later, after all this would happen, Jesus would experience the last Passover meal that he'd ever experienced. And he's going to do it with his disciples. He's going to do it in an upper room. Became famously known as the Lord's Supper. And he, he changes, flips the whole script, changes the meaning of the Passover meal. So rather than just remembering how God saved his people out of Egypt and how they were spared of their life, he says, I, like, I've come now and I'm giving myself as the perfect Passover lamb so that you may have eternal life, real life, life abundantly and to the full. And so he says, every time you eat this, every time you drink this from here on out, I want you to remember me. Not just remember something that happened long ago. I want you to remember me and what I've done for you. He says, this is my body. This bread, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He takes a cup and blesses it gives it to his disciples and says, this is my blood of the new covenant. There's a new promise I'm making. My blood is poured out for you. And every time you drink this cup, I want you to remember that my blood was shed for you. Do it in remembrance of me. And so this morning, we're about to come to this table too. So I want to invite those who are going to come and serve and those who are going to come and lead us in worship to go ahead and come at this time. We're going to go to God in prayer. as we get ready to come and celebrate what Jesus has done here at this table. Father, um, oh, thank you. Thank you that these aren't just some random assortment of events that just happened to come together in some pretty cool way that fulfilled lots of prophecies in the Old Testament. No. John said that you had planned this out from the foundation of the world. God, you knew exactly what you were doing. You sent your own son, your own son. Our sin didn't just cost you a little, it cost you a lot. And Jesus, you came, you were born in that stable, meek, lowly, a lot like your coronation was, riding on a donkey. You came so that you would ultimately satisfy all the religious requirements of God, but not only that, you would die on our behalf as a sacrificial lamb, the perfect spotless lamb. Father, I, I know there has, there has to be people who are listening, people who are in here this morning who have never trusted or embraced Jesus as Messiah, as the true king. Maybe they're looking at Jesus as like part of the crowd or you know, they're just looking to get something from Jesus. Father, I pray that you just have mercy. Have mercy and open their eyes to who Jesus really is. And I pray that they just quit chasing all this other stuff. And chase after Jesus. Father, even those who might be, I don't know, enemies of Jesus. Those who might be like, feel some animosity in their heart towards the church or towards Jesus. I pray you'd show them mercy. What a great testimony, a great story to know that you might change the heart of an enemy of yours. Would you do that? 
And God, as we uh, come to this table, would would we be reminded again of our need for Jesus? I pray in his name. Amen.